Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our fields. We're all involved in something, and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. It's episode two, and we're sitting down to chat over coffee with special guest Rebecca Brenner-Graham. Rebecca Brenner-Graham is a PhD candidate in history at American University. She teaches history at an all-girls college preparatory boarding slash day school in McLean, Virginia. Her background is in public history, and she enjoys writing. So, Rebecca, how do you drink your coffee? I drink my coffee black. Most recently, I've been drinking coffee by running two miles to the Wawa. That's in Georgetown, and I live in Arlington, Virginia, so it's like the perfect length for a run. The hero grocers there know my order, which is a small black coffee. It's always wonderful when your coffee shop sees you coming and is just immediately making your drink before you even have to say anything. And like, <laughs> I appreciate them so much because, I mean, we're recording this during the quarantine. And one of the things I miss the most is just being able to go to a coffee shop. So to pretend that the grocery store Wawa is my local coffee shop and part of my new routine, my small black coffee brings me so much joy. Coffee brings so much joy. I know Caroline and I used to meet in uh, all different coffee shops on campus and try to get work done. And I think that was probably one of the only places I was always productive. And how do you each drink your coffee? I drink two cups of coffee every morning with some coffee creamer, (laughs) either French vanilla or lately it's been amaretto. Wow, you're fancy. I do, I commit a lot of coffee sins every morning. So I make espresso, like, like espresso roast or espresso whatever, but I make it in a drip coffee maker because like and I have I have one of those like fancy coffee makers that you put on the stove and it's like you're an 87 year old Italian man and like I could become (laughs) my grandfather so easily like I I could become him and sometimes like I used to do that but I just need too much coffee and the pot is too small so I make it in a 12 cup drip coffee maker and then I throw some skim lactose free milk in it and that's what I drink Um, and my husband drinks it whatever I don't drink he drinks it the next day iced so actually, I drink uh, hot coffee black, but then sometimes I'll go the other extreme and just add a ton of cream in it because my home state of Rhode Island has an official drink called coffee milk, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's like coffee-flavored milk, and it turns out if you put enough cream in the iced coffee, it becomes coffee milk. The basement of the National Portrait Gallery in D.C. has affogato because they're um, quasi-European, you know, because of of all of the European art. So they sell affogados. And I mean, my first couple years of grad school, that was one of my go-to study destinations for a couple reasons. One is that the Wi-Fi doesn't work. And the other is like, I would just like do writing in front of the paintings. And then I would go downstairs for an affogato. I just looked this up and I do have to say it sounds fantastic. An affogato is an Italian coffee-based dessert. It usually takes the form of a scoop of vanilla gelato or ice cream, topped or drowned with a shot of hot espresso so that that is much fancier than what i do which is i take you know my large spoon and some coffee ice cream if i have it it's really good with like coffee ice cream with chocolate chunks in it oh my gosh it's so good that way then i just like pour a bunch of coffee over it 
and I drink that. And I usually only do it on holidays because if I did that year round, I would have no freezer space. Like Getting into um, why we're here, Rebecca, what was your journey like to get you to this point? Oh, wow. That is a big question. I'm just like really fascinated by your journey because you went to a women's college and now you teach at a girls school. So I'm just really interested in like what that was like. Thank you for asking. Really, that is direct line of story. So I am from Rhode Island. I applied to a couple of women's colleges. I applied to mostly co ed schools. I only got into four of the colleges I applied to. Two were women's colleges. And then I ended up narrowing it down to Mount Holyoke or Bryn Mawr. I got a scholarship from Mount Holyoke, but also it was closer to my family in Rhode Island. So I ended up at a women's college. And there are a lot of people who start the college process and are like, I'm going to go to a women's college. But I sort of stumbled into it accidentally. But a few years in, I honestly am so glad that there were no boys at my college. We like to joke that it's not a girls school without men. It's a woman's school without boys. And I actually have a shirt that says that. You go girl. People don't dress up for class, which sounds insignificant. But really, when you have a class full of women, especially when the professor is a woman, and especially when the professor also went to Mount Holyoke, like my undergrad philosophy advisor, each student is like taken for their intellectual capacity and not for what they look like at all. And then I applied to grad school. I applied to mostly universities either in or outside of DC because I do federal history. I had interned in DC as an undergrad and just really fell in love with the city. So I landed at American University, which is a good fit for a variety of reasons. This past year, I was in my last year of TA funding, my last year of funding. So I started applying to jobs. And since my master's is in public history, I was applying to mostly public history jobs. But my good friend from Mount Holyoke, she went to a boarding school when she was in high school, which I did not. But she uh, sent me the job ad to teach at the place where I work now. So it was unlike other places that I applied to, but my first on-campus visit, it reminded me of a combination of Mount Holyoke, sleepaway summer camp where I worked for a few years, and then like a fancy department store. Because it's like a very beautiful campus. They have a lot of resources. And so it reminded me of all these pleasant things. And when I was interviewing, it was just a really natural fit to keep talking about Mount Holyoke. And I think that that helps me get the job. That's That that's sounds fantastic. so liberating. <laughs> and Erin and I both went to a very large state school. We both went to Stony Brook for undergrad and grad. Oh, cool. Well, my husband uh, went to UMass Amherst. I, I loved visiting him at his big state school. Just like so many people, uh, so many opportunities and activities. Did you like yours? I think I really appreciated, especially in my first two semesters, the anonymity of it. Um, You could kind of be anyone. You could make these new friend groups. As we kind of move forward in college, I found that you fell through the cracks a little bit. And I think that was really my biggest struggle in undergrad. When you go to a school of 20,000 students, it's easy to get lost. And sometimes you're just a number to the administration. Sometimes? A lot of the times. All of the time. All of the time. 
<laughs> but I, um, I actually really wanted to go to a school in the Pioneer Valley, like Mount Holyoke. And I remember being in high school and I met my husband in high school. He really wanted to go to UMass. And I was like, that's fine. I, at the time, had wanted to go to Hampshire or Mount Holyoke or UMass because I felt like they, they each could offer something very different for the type of person and the type of like, like way that I like to move through the world. And so I remember going with my mother to Hampshire and it was pouring rain. Oh my gosh, it was, we were in Western Mass and we had driven like three and a half hours to get there. And she was like, really, honey, it's a field. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. But, but like, let's just like, listen to the tour. And then we went on a tour at UMass and we, like both of us, we were like, okay, like we, we like this. It it, it feels like a school. It feels like a, like a big place. And then we drove through Mount Holyoke because we were tired and it was pouring and we just wanted to go home. But I was like, oh my gosh, I really, I really wanted to go to Mount Holyoke. I really wanted to go to a women's school. I had grown up very near Sarah Lawrence. And like, that was something that I want. All I knew was that I did not want to live in Albany, which is where I live now. <laughs> I also did not want to live to live on Long Island. For, I, like, I hated Long Island. I hated everything about it. Then I was like, I was like, well, I, I want to one day get out of a mountain of debt. <laughs> so, I guess I'm going to Stony Brook. It's funny to me what you say about Hampshire in particular, because like different sides of me socially spent time at each of the five colleges, like literally all five of them. Two quick notes about Hampshire. One is that since I do a lot of Jewish history and went to Mount Holyoke, people often ask if I've been to the Yiddish Book Center on the campus of Hampshire. And I regret to inform them that I've never been in it, but I did play guitar on top of it as part of one of my social phases. And then the second thing is I was Western Regional Director for College Democrats in Massachusetts my junior year. I aspire to own a dog, and hopefully when I finish grad school, we can get a dog. I've been really into corgis because they look so happy, and my husband said that we would name it Butter because it looks like a stick of butter. I love that. So so I live in a 20-story apartment building, and I'm on the 12th floor, and I don't really know like anyone else in the building, but there's a dog who lives directly across from us who is a French bulldog named Pierre, and Pierre is a very anxious dog. Uh, when Pierre first got here, I, he was so afraid of the elevators. First, you had to hold him, and then they got him to sit in the elevator, and then you had to hold his paw. Pierre is just like the sweetest dog ever. My little sister, who lives in Rhode Island, texted me and said that she was just wondering how Pierre is doing. Recently, in high school philosophy class, I got to teach. Immanuel Kant and like we have no duty to animals which is one of his articles and I made a PowerPoint slide and I put a picture of Pierre on it and then wrote like we have no duty to animals and like asked the students to debate that so Pierre is my favorite dog my favorite dog is a French bulldog who's very anxious 
we're all kind of an anxious French bulldog. Yeah. I tell my coworkers, I'm like, look, I'm basically a human chihuahua. I am a very anxious person. My bark is far worse than my bite. But like, so to get kind of like back on track, women mentoring other women is so powerful and it's so important. I'm just so happy that there are girls schools and there are women's colleges. And I'm so happy that that you're teaching in one because I just really, really think that we do not give teenage girls their due and I will go to the mat for a teenage girl every single day of the week and twice on Sunday. Absolutely. I mean, my school and schools generally, I think, have done a really good job at integrating women's history into the curriculum. But then the next step that we're all working on, and I feel that I'm positively contributing to, is that women also know history, you know, like to to quote the database. But also, I mean, I had all male high school history teachers. Like we just think of men as authoritative automatically. And for women, sometimes it takes a little bit more work. But that's one of the reasons that I feel that I'm doing good in my job now is by being a woman historian at a girl's school. And then I've been getting to teach some of the philosophy elective. And um, I will almost definitely have a section of it next year. That's not official yet. But I got to substitute in one of my colleagues' philosophy class several times. And after they learned about like utilitarianism and Kantianism, Aristotelian ethics, like then I started bringing in contemporary problems. And there's a book that I read in a woman in philosophy class at Mount Holyoke. It's called Get to Work and Get a Life Before It's Too Late by philosopher and social commentator Linda Hirschman. She's the one who wrote that book about uh, RBG and Sandra Day O'Connor. But anyway, so it's called Get to Working, Get a Life Before It's Too Late. And it's basically saying that ethically, women should work. And it makes this whole argument about women working. And the girls actually did not take to, to the argument. They were like, women should have a choice. Like, women should not automatically be forced to work. If they make their choices, that's valid. But then they were able to put Hirschman in conversation with Aristotle, who was a total sexist, and with Kant, who was kind of a weirdo. Contemporary women thinkers are not just as smart, but a lot of times even more prolific and belong in that history and that philosophy, too. So one of the things we're trying to show through this podcast is that our journeys are not always a straight line. A lot of us have these wandering or meandering paths. So what is the most interesting, worst, or most bizarre job or research position you've ever held? My path is relatively linear in the scheme of things, but I love the question about what's the most random job you've had. (laughs) Last summer, a couple people actually paid me to play guitar and sing, which was not something that I sought out. I was just like playing at my local open mic. And I I was like playing at my local open mic, but I was literally working on my dissertation while I was not on stage. Like I was not trying to get hired or anything. And then I had so much fun. I had a paid gig that paid more per hour than a history research job does. That's for sure. I was like, I chose the wrong career. Anyway, no one's asked me to play anything since then. Um, I mean, maybe you have listeners in Northern Virginia or DC. <laughs> we'll put your name in if we ever <laughs> if we ever get asked that. 
practiced so much for it. And I got to take a day trip to the middle of nowhere, Virginia, where I played at a winery in a really rural area, like overlooking the vineyards. And I got to play a two hour set, but it was just so much fun to completely step out of my normal roles and to be, um, I mean, I'm totally kidding here, but like a rock star for two hours. I think you're entitled to feel like a rock star. We're more than our degrees. So we're more than what we do at work. But my path is relatively linear because I grew up with an aunt and uncle who lived in DC who were very close to me and my parents and my mom doesn't fly. So we would drive down at least once a year to visit them. And every time we came to DC, I got to pick one Smithsonian museum to visit. So if it's limited to one, you can see how a kid would get just like really excited about museums in general. I went into college as a history major. I had a really great intro to philosophy professor, so I added philosophy on as a second major. And then I took the GRE junior year, applied to history grad school. I got into a public history master's. Uh, I did not get into any PhD programs, but then I went to the public history master's and barely three months in was able to transfer onto the PhD track. So that way I was able to do my public history master's and start working toward my doctorate in the same department, which I think is like relatively linear. And then I've had either a research or a public history job on top of TA each year, mainly just because Washington, D.C. is such an expensive place to live if you want to like have food and shelter. Then when my funding ran out this year, I started applying to jobs. And I'm always so interested to hear other scholars' stories, but I think mine is relatively boring. But where I do see myself as being a good fit for your podcast is the idea of having one foot in academia and one foot out of academia. And right now that is me because I have a job and I'm also a PhD candidate. And those are two worlds that sometimes overlap and sometimes don't. And that can be a little bit challenging. I I am 100% here for that. My like my personal kind of like positioning within academia is something like like you would see like on a twister board like mid game. <laughs> so <laughs> So I I am 100% here from here for this. So can you tell us a little bit about your research, like your academic research that you do? So my fields for comprehensive exams were early United States, recent United States, and public history. But then my dissertation ended up being the long 19th century. So my dissertation is on 19th century religion state relations in the United States through the lens of Sunday mail delivery. You've got mail. Initially, when I started my PhD, I thought I was going to do church-state relations in the very early U.S., like during the founding, uh, like maybe Jeffersonian times. But in every book I read about this, there was always a short section about the Sunday mail controversy. And then toward the end of my second year, when I was looking for a dissertation topic, but also just like reading these books to start preparing for comprehensive exams, I learned that Sunday mail was a thing until 1912. And all of the Sunday Mail stuff I had read was about the early U.S. And since what I was really interested in is the relationship between religion and state, I decided that 
studying Sunday mail as a religion state issue over the course of 102 years would be the ideal dissertation topic for me. And so far, I still like it. So I think it was a good choice of topic. I'm about halfway through the writing, hoping for only one more year in grad school. That's really cool. I am really fascinated by that, both kind of as someone who does labor studies and also as someone who really enjoys getting mail and doesn't like for my life to be interrupted by by rhythms that I did not create myself. <laughs> I love getting mail. <laughs> I changed my name when I got married. I hyphenated my name. It is very, very long now. Mm-hmm. And some of my friends, they will send mail to us as Dr. and Mrs. Grossman because my husband did defend his doctorate and yay, he's a, he's a PhD now. And I'm sure that we will have an argument and I will say something harsh and he will be like, well, it's Dr. Jerkwad to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, but yeah, so we get mail addressed to Dr. and Mrs. a lot and <laughs> it is always fun, but it's usually like a, like a card or like a birthday card or something sweet. So I don't have the heart to correct them, but I'm like, mm, this really bothers me, <laughs> especially because it's hyphenated. It's two names. I have an essay coming out soon on my name change decision. I wrote it for Jewish Women's Archives. Well, I changed my name from my last name was Brenner, and now it's Graham. And Brenner is now my middle name, but I treat it as if it's like professionally, I go by Rebecca Brenner Graham, but legally Brenner is my middle name and Graham is my last name. And there's two ways that people are super rude about that. One is suggesting that I'm somehow less Jewish because I no longer have a common Jewish last name. Second is there are a lot of different variations of like sexist dismissal of person due to name change. And since that publication is like intersectional Jewish women's feminism, one day I was just really frustrated by someone making a derogatory comment and I like rage wrote this uh, essay about why I changed my name and they helped me edit it and make it coherent. I really want to read this. I found it easy to argue why dismissive comments are annoying and more difficult to argue why I actually changed my name because ultimately it comes down to I liked how it looked and sounded and when I make decisions it's about like how is my personhood going to be and my personhood tends to be my professional identity just because like that's where my focus is and so I wanted to be Rebecca Brenner Graham as a person as a scholar as a teacher I found it difficult to write about reasons beyond that because it's such a personal decision and I understand the patriarchal history of marriage and name change but I had my choice and that's a choice I And it was a lot of effort. It is. It is a ton of effort that I have kind of like stubbornly refused to do most of because I really (laughs) hate making myself legible to the state. So like we went to apply for a marriage license and I was like, "Why, why are we here? Why are we doing this? And he's like, so that we can have rights. And I was like, yeah, but like, why? He was like, you, you're going to have to leave in a minute because you're losing it. Um, (laughs) But like, but so like we did it. And, and, you know, so we have this marriage license and we have now it's a marriage certificate. My name was changed from Caroline Perpersey to Caroline Perpersey Grossman. It's hyphenated. 
And I chose to do that instead of put my first last name into a middle name slot because my middle name is my mother's um, first last name. So I am one person with um, three last names and I kept all of them. And when I fly, TSA agents look at my ID and they're like, that's a lot of letters. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Can I get on the plane now? (laughs) (laughs) So we talked a little bit about, about your work, but if you had unlimited funding and time and resources, what project would you want to do? Even though I complain often about various little things, I am very privileged to say that I'm currently doing exactly what I want, which is to write a dissertation on religion state relations at American University with my specific advisor, Gautam Rao, who's amazing and a historian of the state, and then teaching at Madeira. I used to say that my dream job would be if there was a women's college in the D.C. area. This college prep school functions like a women's college. I adore my students. They make me laugh. I really miss them now that we're doing virtual learnings. <laughs> After I I want my PhD so badly, and something I always wanted to do was to have a full-time job. Since I went straight from college to grad school, I just wanted to see that I can do it, and now I can, and I think I'll do it for a while longer, but ultimately right now, I feel that I would love to be an author because I love writing. And there are a lot of things I complain about in the dissertation process, but writing is not one of them. I love writing. So I guess that answer will actually lead us into our next question. And that is, how has the COVID-19 outbreak impacted your work? Initially, I felt much worse for other people than myself. Like, So in March, the way it went down was that I had been looking forward to my three-week spring break because I was still TAing at night and teaching during the day. And I was about to have American University spring break one week and then prep school spring break for two weeks. And the, the AU spring break was that last week that we had normal life when everything was closing. And so that week I was like making preparations. And then the next two weeks, because the prep school was on spring break, I was doing two things. I was preparing for prep school to come back virtually. Once AU spring break was over, I was like assisting the professor I was TAing for to make that transition and communicating with students in different time zones. I had a really great group that I was TAing. I was TAing uh, History 100 for Professor Eileen Finley, who's wonderful. And there weren't any huge differences for me. And then for the prep school, I was lucky that we are on a module system, the mod system, which means that there are seven sections of the year and you switch what classes you have. It worked out so that the students I had right after the pandemic started were all students that I had already had and had great relationships with, except there were two that I had not met before, but that was manageable to get to know them. So even though it was really awful and people were dying, it did not affect my day-to-day very much. Uh, So that was March. 
And then I think we can all agree that March lasted forever and April didn't happen because April really <laughs> by and it was bizarre. But then we hit May and now we are in mod seven, which started this week. And the biggest challenge now that I have two classes full of new students has been to educate girls that I have not met. And one of the things that I value most about teaching is there's this really great quote about it in that book, What's the Point of College by Johan Neem that came out last year. He basically says that teaching is having a passion for your subject and conveying it. And then through your relationship with the students, they become passionate about what you're passionate about. And that's how they learn. And that's key to my teaching philosophy. And this week has been a real challenge for me because I haven't met my students in person. That is really tough. That That is just very, very, very tough. And yeah, I, I don't know how I would, would teach not being in person because a lot of what I do is, is kind of like nonverbal. So I talk a lot with my hands. I'm lucky but- that I have one colleague uh, in my department who she has done graduate work online and she's also just brilliant and I was lucky that she asked me to be her accountability buddy. So we have a virtual meeting every week, which initially started out as just like chatting and is now basically me asking her all of the questions that I have when I'm lost and confused. So she's kind of my lifeline right now. It's good to have friends at work. It is. It really is. I think that one of the things that, you know, we learn in grad school is how to be mentored. And some of us learn it faster than others. And some of us you know, don't really learn it, but it's one of like the points of doctoral training to me at least is to learn how to be mentored or to learn to mentor undergraduates or, you know, or people who you can not guide, but be like, Hey, here's the map. The road's that way. Don't turn left. Um, there are bears. (laughs) Um, And the more that I think we're working remote or working in ways that we've never done it before, all, like everyone all at the same time, like the more important these like mentoring relationships really are. I did the in-person traditional masters in history at Stony Brook, but right now I I guess I decided to go back to school at a really bad time. I'm currently doing master in science in nonprofit administration, and that program is online. This has been such a valuable experience in that it does give me that understanding of um, you know how a nonprofit actually runs on the day to day, and I think that's really important because it gives me new insight into my own work and sort of the broader picture. It can be hard to find meaning in your work when the world seems so crazy. And I think that's what's getting to me. I guess I kind of have a theory that everyone has like one thing that ha- that is why they are still here and sane during this. Mine is reading. What are yours? I have been doing so much yoga. <laughs> And I've been taking the dog for nature walks, socially distanced nature walks. That's so healthy. Fantastic. Both of you with like these very like positive coping mechanisms. But my reading is ridiculous. You haven't heard the extent of it. So I've been watching um, really terrible. It's not terrible, but it's like fantasy. Definitely like and my dad. My dad has the best word for it. He calls it history fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And one time... 
I was in high school and I was like getting into fan fiction and something that is just like very like comforting to kind of like slip into at the end of like a long day. Okay, like I'll read this chapter and see what see what people are doing with these characters that like I already know and and have like these very complicated like understandings of because if you read enough fan fiction, your understanding of what the character canonically does is wildly different. So I had to explain to my dad like what I was reading on the computer all of the time. And then I had to explain to him that it's that it's like someone took these characters and maybe where they are and then they wrote another story he my dad is a trekker so he understands what fan fiction is even if he's never read it because star trek live long and prosper then that movie noah came out with emma watson oh my god and he called me after he saw like a preview on tv or something and he was like oh my god caroline they're making bible fan fiction then i had to kind of tell him that there's a lot of bible fan fiction so i'm watching the last kingdom and it is this fan fiction of basically of saxon england and it's really interesting and i like it so much more than i liked game of thrones but i'm just watching way too much of it and i'm doing these really zany like 30 minute dance workouts and yeah and Aaron and i started a podcast which I guess is a COVID. Did <laughs> that happen post-quarantine? I think mid-quarantine was when we finally said to each other, like, look, you know, we've been joking about this for months, but we could actually do this. Like, we both need a passion project right now. There's so many people out there that are doing really creative and adaptive work during this time. Everyone needs to talk about something. Let's Let's do this. Good for you. It was quarantine. So my thing with the books is a little bit, I think it transcends the bounds of normal. When I started working in my new job, I had a long commute. I have to take the metro and a lift every day because I don't have a car and my job is not metro accessible. So when the year 2020 started, I downloaded Audible, which um, is really great. So that was pretty normal. But then when quarantine started, I realized that there were not enough books on my Instagram feed. So I decided to start a bookstagram account where I follow only book accounts. My handle for that is basic bookstagrammer. It's like the most wholesome corner of the internet. It's just people who are obsessed with books and like want to talk to other people who are. One day my husband pulled an old Kindle out of the cupboard. I had been opposed to reading on tablets for a long time. Every day I enjoy checking the Kindle book deals when I wake up. On the Kindle website, there is like a new amazing deal. And there are daily deals. But that's what I like to do. So there's Libro FM. If you have over a thousand followers on any social media platform, which for me was like academic Twitter, you get a ton of free audiobooks every month, and they're actually good stuff. I listen to the Happy Ever After playlist, which is like a popular fiction novel. Then there is the Book of the Month Club. They are so amazing. And I they mail it to you in an adorable blue box without shipping. They're just beautiful books. They're good for bookstagram. So far from them, I got The Sundown Motel. It is an excellent thriller. I forgot. I felt that Goodreads was the central strand in between my teaching life and my scholarly life and maybe some fellowships that required reading and my personal life and my audiobooks on my commute because they're all logged in the same place, which is that central strand of books that links all my pieces together. And I'm thankful for it. That's awesome. You read a lot. 
<laughs> you read more than I think anyone I know, and my husband is always reading. I used to be really into running, and then I had a slump from it for years. Like my first couple years of grad school, I ran three half marathons. And then for years, I've just been trying to get back into it and kind of hating it. And just this past week, I take my audiobooks on these long runs, and this is the most into running that I've been for years. And it's because I just want to listen to my audiobooks in peace. That's fantastic. So I know you read a lot, and I'm pretty sure that you write a lot because you like writing. And for me, that's that's pulling teeth. I do not like doing it. It's like this thing that I do because the the stories that I I research are important and more people need to know them. And the easiest way to do that is to write them. But do you feel like this pressure to produce, especially like the quarantine pressure to produce um, and be productive all of the time? Like, do you feel that? Oh, I have a lot of anxiety, but that's not mine. (laughs) Like when I took philosophy of consciousness in college, we learned that like things are really awful at the time. And then after they pass, we our brains literally don't remember how awful they were. And that's why people exist. Because if people who give birth remembered how much it hurt, they would never do it again. I have a ton of anxiety. But I think the reason I don't feel the pressure to produce is twofold. One is because I never intended to be a traditional academic. And two, because I have a really great advisor who like listens to me talk about my feelings and is not abusive, whereas from what I've heard, other people's advisors are. So Rebecca, what do you wish people understood about what you do? For me, public history was never a second choice. And like, even though I didn't get into a PhD on the first try, I always wanted to do both the PhD and the public history master's. So public history was not a second choice like it is for a lot of people. And second, my teaching job is not a second choice. I love it. And I think that I can be a full-fledged scholar while doing it. I don't know if my goal is to publish in a traditional scholarly journal, but if it is, I can 100% work on that while teaching. For me, the public history, the teaching, and the scholarly work all come together. Everyone in the department at, um, at the prep school has a different background. A couple of them have been there forever. One person has a religious studies background. One person has an international relations background and speaks a bunch of languages and has lived around the world. We all bring something really different to the table. And my teaching is a product of my public history masters and like the different jobs that I worked each year of grad school. And then my training as a scholar, as an almost PhD. And for me, those all, those things all go together and it's not, nothing that I'm doing right now is a second choice. And I do feel that sometimes people assume that it is. Public history is the bridge between academia and museums. It is very inclusive, and anyone who wants to get into it should be able to do that. But it is not just a traditional academic writing one op-ed, and I think that the phrase public history gets thrown around a lot. The spirit of public history is very inclusive. Anyone who wants to be a public historian should go about doing that. 
But now there's like a section on all academic CVs of the public history work that they've done. And if their focus is traditional scholarly journals and getting tenure and the public history is just secondary, then there are people whose real career is public history who went to school for that and have worked full time in different settings and written exhibits and been subject to the will of donors and been involved with National Council for Public History, which is like one of my favorite professional organizations. They have academics, they have museum professionals, they have people who used to be a museum professional and are now teaching public history in an academic setting. And all of that is public history. But one thing that's really central to it is taking the time to think about what it is, which is why in my first semester of grad school, when I took a public history class, we spent a lot of time talking about what is public history. And if a person has not thoughtfully considered that question, then they should start doing that. So how do you market yourself or let other people know about your work? LinkedIn is what I check when I'm procrastinating. Like if I'm checking LinkedIn, it means that I really don't want to be doing whatever I'm doing. I Academic Twitter got me through last school year when I had a remote job and had very little human interaction. Like the beginning of quarantine, unfortunately, was not the most isolated I had ever been because last year I had a remote job and didn't have friends in my neighborhood. So while my husband was at work all day, I worked on TAing, RAing, and my dissertation, and I was on academic Twitter. So I'm definitely active on academic Twitter. I have a website, RebeccaBrennerGram.com, bought the URL right after I finished my name change process, and I update that. I just genuinely like making new friends. I like the context of your podcast and how you started it, like a coffee date, because that's really my favorite way to put myself out there is by meeting new people over coffee. And fortunately, in Washington, D.C., that's a really common thing to do. (laughs) That's so wonderful. I know I miss meeting people over coffee. (laughs) Erin and I used to work together. In addition to doing grad school together, I really needed a job, and Erin found me some hours at the museum that she works at and I used to come in at like I don't know 10 o'clock in the morning which was that I had to go from the north shore of Long Island to the south shore of Long Island but I would always stop at Starbucks so I would come in with like this giant thing and it was basically like mostly espresso with like a little bit of steamed soy milk on it. It was it was not a latte. I could not in good conscience call what I was drinking a latte. And then I'd always have like a little drink for Erin <laughs> and I'd please have the coffee. And that's just like what we would do. And I really, I really do miss like that face-to-face interaction and the coffee. I am wondering if you could tell us about um, the job market support network and like kind of like what it is and kind of how you see yourself within this community of scholars who have one foot in the academy and we will keep that foot in the academy come hell or high water and then like the rest of our bodies or maybe just like another foot kind of like literally anywhere else. I do see myself as someone who is an academic and also has a job that is not really in academia. One, I read the book, What's the Point of College by Johan Niem. 
Um, and I reviewed that for the USIH blog, U.S. Intellectual History. But the book was really compelling. And one of the arguments it makes is that academia, as we know it, might not stay in the academy. Like scholarship might not stay on university campuses because university campus life doesn't necessarily revolve around the classroom. I identify as like academically inclined person. And for me, the place where I feel most at home as an academically inclined person is in my prep school classroom, which is a nice little classroom. I miss it a lot. It's set up like a circle and it has like 16 girls at a time in it. And I feel like we have really great academic discussions. They are at least as capable as college students, sometimes more. That's my job that's not on the tenure path at a traditional academic institution, but I'm still a scholar. So if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what do you think it would be? Oh, that's a great question. I knew when I was younger what mattered to me. I've always really valued authenticity and compassion. And in middle school, in high school, I made no effort to fit in. But I think what I would tell my younger self is that making a little bit of an effort to like follow societal standards or like wear makeup, even though I don't enjoy it, does advance me and helps me to work towards values that are really important to me, compassion, genuine passion for learning, and that I can do those things better if I'm not distracted by standing out too much by not putting an effort to fit in. So for most people, put an effort to fit in would be really bad advice. But for a younger version of myself, I wish I had learned that a little bit sooner. I love that. It's also like very utilitarian, which I've been told that I have a very strong utilitarian streak. Pragmatism. <laughs> it is. Um, it's like it's very alarming. Um, my husband um, went to a Jesuit school in New York. He commuted every day, either on the train, which he hates, or he drove. And one of the things that he studied while he was there was he did a philosophy minor. So he read like all the, like all of these philosophers that you're talking about, and what I would do is I would just make puns about them because <laughs> I'm such a supportive, I'm such, like, I'm such a supportive person. I, he'd be like, "Oh yeah, so I read, uh, you know, the Critique of Pure Reason." I'm like, "I can't even. Like, I am, <laughs> I am that part." <laughs> but like one of the things, and, and like we and we still do is like we still like talk about like a problem in the world, and I'm like, "Well, wouldn't it just be something?" And and he would say, "Well, you know, like I don't think you're valuing like this the way that it should be valued." And I'm like, "Well, explain it to me." It, and it really does feel like sometimes like someone just like chewed up something that Kant said and then put it in my face. And I and he's like, look, you can't trolley problem your way out of this. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And he does logic for a living. He's a mathematician. So I, I can't ever I can't win if I fight fair. <laughs> I have to um, I have to confuse him with fact. But... <laughs> and since we do want to finish on a high note, what's been your biggest triumph? What's the one thing that you're most proud of? The three points that professionally I wake up every day thankful for 
are that I passed my undergrad honors thesis. For a couple years, I literally thought of it every day that I was just so grateful that I actually passed it. The second one was getting into my PhD program, getting to live in my dream city while working with my dream advisor. That's a privilege, but it's also something I worked really hard for. So it's something that I'm proud of. And then the third thing would be getting my job that I really sought out. There was no training in my life, like how to apply for stuff. And I'm lucky that I landed somewhere that I love, but I'm also proud of myself for seeking it out on my own and realizing that I needed to do that before my funding ran out, not after. Those are all things to be extremely proud of. So um, so the last question is, I don't know, you read a lot, so maybe you're not doing the lowbrow thing and watching Netflix like I am. Did you watch Tiger King? Yes. Do you think that Carol Baskin fed her husband to the cats? Yes. Is it a problem for you or you were like, nah, go Carol? It's not the biggest problem in the show, but it's definitely a problem. <laughs> that was the best answer I've heard. <laughs> I think that the cult is the biggest problem in the show. It was like two in the morning. I was texting Aaron. I was like, oh my God, we need to talk about the cult. I watched it first and I messaged Caroline like, listen, I did it. I watched it. You got to watch it because we got to talk about it. I cut my bangs. I watched Tiger King. I had my boyfriend dye my hair. It's been a weird quarantine. You have to find the joy. Yes. (laughs) And for me, honestly, the joy was that maybe she fed her husband to the cats. Rebecca, we'd like to thank you for agreeing to chat with us tonight. We had a really great time chatting with you, and we can't wait to see what you accomplish in the future. I had such a great night. Thank you so much for inviting me and for talking with me. It was a blast. Uh, You can find Rebecca at the other RBG on Twitter, on her website at RebeccaBrennerGram.com, and also on Women Also Know History, because women also know history. Here at Scholars Beyond the Tower, we're working on putting together an exciting variety of interviews, and we would love to hear from you. We purposely kept our mission pretty broad because we want to talk about how we engage with our work and with the public, inside, outside, and adjacent to the Ivory Tower. Are you a scholar beyond the tower with a story to share? Email us at scholarsbeyondthetower at gmail.com. We record remotely from the comfort of our apartments. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Tower, on Instagram at Scholars Beyond the Tower, and on Facebook as Scholars Beyond the Tower. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Pocket Casts, Breaker, and Radio Public. Please rate, review, and subscribe so we can reach a wider audience. Well, scholars, until next time. Stay connected and stay caffeinated.